Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is a part two. Uh, you won't necessarily be lost if you jump in here uh, because we're kind of talking about episodic developments in emergency medicine. Uh, but that'll give you some good background for how we get to the place we start here. In our first episode, we talked about some of the earliest emergency and first responder efforts in the U.S., as well as resuscitation, and then the rise of emergency medicine as a medical specialty. Today, we're going to jump right in and talk about a paper that was very important. Yeah, so as all of that was playing out with, with emergency medicine evolving as a specialty, other strides and milestones in emergency medicine were also happening. In 1966, a white paper entitled Accidental Death and Disability, The Neglected Disease of Modern Society was released. This paper, published by the National Academy of Sciences National Research Council Committees on Trauma and Shock, is often referenced as a really pivotal point in the development of emergency medicine in the United States. The paper opens with the following statement. Quote, in 1965, 52 million accidental injuries killed 107,000 people, temporarily disabled over 10 million, and permanently impaired 400,000 American citizens at the cost of approximately $18 billion. This neglected epidemic of modern society is the nation's most important environmental health problem. It is the leading cause of death in the first half of life's span. And it then went on to say that, quote, public apathy to the mounting toll from accidents must be transformed into an action program under strong leadership. The paper discusses how other problems that have arisen in terms of the health of the public have been, have seen action from both federal agencies and various volunteer agencies. And those problems included things like congenital disabilities, cancer, heart disease, things like that. They said that similar efforts could make a significant impact on accidental death and disability, and it called for better training for emergency responders, research into trauma, and efforts to educate the public about accident prevention and emergency medical services. In breaking down the numbers of just how serious preventable accidents were in terms of mortality and the resources needed to treat them— The paper made a very clear case that in not addressing these issues, many of which had compounded over the years as technological and industrial advances became more commonplace, the government, the public, and hospitals were all paying a steep price. And one of the main issues was a steep rise in automobile accidents as more and more people got behind the wheel. This is also tied into the development of the poison control system and accidental poisonings that we talked about in our recent episode. Yeah. Two specific areas of medicine that received a lot of attention in this paper were ambulances and emergency departments. The paper noted the lack of consistent standards in ambulance service and a lack of funding for such services, the absence of certification or licensing for ambulance personnel in most places, and the fact that there was no such thing as a manufactured ambulance. All existing ambulances were conversions of vehicles that had not been built in order to do that job. Yeah, for most ambulances, what they were doing was just carrying a person. They weren't really providing any kind of care. And a lot of the ambulances you would see in the street were converted hearses, or sometimes hearses that worked both for mortician's offices and carrying bodies to the hospital. 
The other major issue in ambulance service that was pointed out in the paper was the ongoing problem of communication. And this point was actually made by comparing it to the space program. Quote, Although it is possible to converse with the astronauts in outer space, communication is seldom possible between an ambulance and the emergency department it is approaching. Even though there were already radio frequency channels dedicated to emergency use by the Federal Communications Commission, they were not consistently being used for dispatch and tracking or ambulances or hospitals having access to information about the developments of possible medical emergencies, such as train or traffic accidents. When it came to emergency departments, the paper's assessment of the situation was similarly really grim. It mentioned the same issue that we talked about regarding the development of Alexandria, Virginia's emergency department, that people were using it for outpatient care more than for actual emergencies. Quote, more than two-thirds of the 40 million emergency room visits in 1966 cannot be classified as emergencies. But at the same time, emergency departments were still having all kinds of problems. Uh, While it was recognized that full-time physicians needed to be contracted for work in emergency departments, that cost often meant that hospitals were actually losing money on emergency care because they had to pay the staff, but they weren't always taking money in for their work. There also weren't that many doctors who were trained in emergency medicine, so many hospitals were still making all the members of their medical staff, regardless of whether they were just, you know, like a specialist in some particular field, take emergency department shifts. The Accidental Death and Disability paper recommended that medical, undergraduate, and residency programs be improved to offer adequate training in trauma and emergency care, that more research be done into trauma and shock, and that hospitals plan ahead for population growth when developing or implementing their emergency unit procedures and budgets. There were additional, much more specific recommendations for the emergency services in general. For one, it stated that municipalities needed to make clear where their hospitals were, writing, quote, It is essential that roadmaps and road signs at appropriate locations designate routes to hospitals and emergency departments. And there was also a call to ensure that in cities where there might be multiple hospitals, patients and ambulances were routed to the facility best equipped to treat their specific injury or illness. To properly be able to determine which facilities offered specific levels of care, it was recommended that emergency departments be sorted into four classifications. The first of these, type 1, was called an advanced first aid facility. This would mean there was not a full-time physician on staff and that it would be best for minor issues and possibly emergency resuscitation. Type 2 was a limited emergency facility, and this classification would mean that there was a a nurse available at all times, maybe a physician. The unit operated 24 hours a day and could address more serious injuries than a Type 1 facility, but still would not likely be able to manage a critical injury scenario. Type 3 was categorized as a major emergency facility. This is a department uh, classification that would mean that that department was able to, quote, render complete care to the severely injured or the seriously ill. And this classification would mean that that department was staffed with both nurses and doctors at all hours, and it would have a unit director with experience and knowledge in triaging and treating patients with severe trauma. Type 4 was an emergency facility combined with trauma research unit. 
And this was intended to designate an emergency department at the Type 3 level that worked in correlation with staff that could help establish and manage trauma registries and a trauma committee that could track patient care and identify areas for improvement, among other duties. And this report was one of the first times that information about the gaps in emergency care in the U.S. was really pulled together and widely shared. And it made a big impact as the medical community assessed how they could fill those gaps and provide that better care that was needed. One of the authors of the paper, John M. Howard, M.D., wrote in 2009 about having been a part of this project. And he wrote, quote, In many ways, the challenges facing EMS now are similar to those we faced 30-odd years ago. We can see the potential for better patient care just beyond the horizon, and we need a plan for getting there. Changes of this magnitude do not come quickly or easily, but the rewards far outweigh the effort. One of the outcomes of this paper was the introduction of the National Highway Safety Act of 1966. That act established the Department of Transportation, under which the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration was formed in 1970. It is not surprising that in the years immediately following its publication, a number of significant events happened in the field of emergency medicine. For one, a formalized system of ambulance personnel training came out of a conference that started in 1967, the National Conference of Emergency Medical Services, that was hosted by the American Medical Association. We're going to talk some more about emergency training in just a bit, but uh, yeah, this paper catalyzed a lot of movement. Coming up, we're going to talk about the number that folks in the U.S. have been trained for years to call in an emergency. But first, we will take a sponsor break. In 1968, a significant and now very familiar phone number was established that has become part of emergency services in the U.S. and other places ever since, and that is 911. There had been requests for a service like this for more than a decade. In the 1950s, the National Association of Fire Chiefs had asked for a dedicated number that people could use to report fires. Before 911 was established... And before it was implemented everywhere, dialing for help in emergency could be tricky. For one, every municipality had their own service or service number. They were not uniform from one place to another. Where I grew up, if I was at home, there was one number. If I was at my dad's office in the city, there was a different one. Um, If you were traveling, the odds of knowing the number in a place that wasn't your hometown were pretty low. Many people in these situations would dial zero to get the operator, but if they were in a busy metro area, that meant that their call, which could be life or death, was in a queue with non-emergency calls, like people just trying to get phone numbers or be connected to some municipal department. Those moments lost waiting on a switchboard could mean that help did not arrive in time. And if you lived in a really busy city, there could have been multiple possible numbers to call as there was a lot of coverage overlap among different fire and police departments. Finally, in 1967, there was some movement on this issue. The President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice initiated action on the need for a universal emergency number. Eventually, after a number of other government agencies got involved, the FCC was tasked with figuring out the best solution. This number needed to be easy to remember, easy to dial, and hardest of all, it had to be a program that could be implemented countrywide. That last part turned out to be tricky. The FCC reached out to the American Telephone and Telegraph Company to help brainstorm a solution, 
If you're wondering why the government reached out to a private company, at this point, AT&T, which had been founded in the late 1800s, still had a monopoly on phone service in the United States. So to make an emergency number work, they would have to be on board. And just in case anyone does not know, the AT&T monopoly wasn't broken until the 1980s when it was split into eight pieces to end an antitrust suit. That's a whole long story on its own and a whole different podcast. Uh, it was ultimately AT&T that came up with the 911 number, which was relatively easy to dial, even on a rotary phone, which were still in wide use throughout the U.S. at this time. The number had never been assigned as an area code or for any other purpose, so the number could be easily recognized throughout the phone company's various systems and thus routed appropriately. The first 911 call was ceremonial. It was made by Senator Rankin Fight in the town of Haleyville, Alabama on February 16, 1968. The call was answered by another Alabama politician who was standing by, U.S. Representative Tom Belville. But while this system could work almost anywhere in the U.S., that didn't mean that every municipality instantly implemented the use of 911. Plus, there were still plenty of rural areas where AT&T just did not offer service of any kind. And even in cities, there were some unforeseen problems. A 1970 article in the New York Times mentioned the issues that were slowing adoption of the system down, stating, quote, the delays are due to rivalries between police and fire departments unwilling to yield control of incoming calls, to the difficulty in obtaining cooperation among political subdivisions within a metropolitan area, and to the reluctance of politicians to add another expense to the cost of government. One of the cases made in support of 911 in the article was the success with which similar numbers had been rolled out in other countries, specifically the UK, which started using 999 as an emergency number in 1937, 30 years before the U.S. got around to doing something similar. Yeah, it's one of those things kind of like we were talking about when we discussed poison control. When I was doing research for this, I really had not realized that um, well into my lifetime, not even like just when I was a kid and not aware, there were lots of places that still could not call 911. I did not know that for the longest time. As this implementation process dragged out, California legislator Charles Hugh Warren championed a bill in that state called the Warren 911 Emergency Assistance Act. And this act made implementation of 911 for emergency calls a law in the state of California. And to help municipalities pay for getting the service up and running and then maintaining it, Warren's bill included provisions for creating funding by adding a surcharge on phone bills. But while this established a law for California that was not a law in other states, and the costs of such systems continued to be a sticking point for a lot of politicians, one of the primary events that got a lot of the country over that hump was the founding of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 1972. This foundation, which is a philanthropy that funds health initiatives, focused a lot of its early grant efforts on improving emergency care in rural areas. That included funding for the implementation of the 911 system. In 1973, the White House established a federal information center to work with state and local governments to assist in a more total rollout of the 911 system. And over the next 30 years, the service expanded slowly to cover almost all of the country. There are today even still small pockets without it. Uh, And the Americans with Disabilities Act included a provision that people with disabilities who use teletype writers had to be accommodated by this system as well. 
today, all U.S. states have a surcharge on phone landline service to fund 911, and most have a similar surcharge on wireless and VoIP connections as well. 911 is also international, although it's not the standard emergency number in every country. Our last segment in this two-parter is about ambulance services. But before we dig into that, let's pause and take a quick sponsor break. Before we get into talking about early paramedics and EMTs in the U.S., we should note that those are two different things. Uh, You may not always know that if you watch television medical shows because they're not always careful about it. Uh, And I think in casual conversation, people intermingle them without knowing there's a difference. So in broad strokes, EMTs, emergency medical technicians, are first care providers. They can assess and monitor a patient. They can care for them during transport to a medical facility and then provide clear details of their status and health during handoff to the next level of care. Paramedics are trained to perform a more advanced level of emergency care, and they are able to handle sudden illness, injury, and emergencies like childbirth before a patient arrives at a medical facility. The first fire department paramedic training in the U.S. started in 1969. That year, the Miami Fire Department started training firefighters for paramedic skills, creating the first paramedic training program. In 1970, the Seattle Fire Department teamed up with the University of Washington and the Harborview Medical Center to offer paramedic training to its firefighters. The Medic One program that started that year continues to this day. The early 1970s saw a huge push for government funding for emergency care. The first curriculum for the Advanced Emergency Medical Technician, that's EMTs, was published, and the first exam for certification in the program was developed in the first two years of the decade. In 1972, $16 million was allocated by the Department of Public Health, Education, and Welfare to establish emergency medical services demonstrations in several states. In 1973, the development of emergency services in the U.S. got another federal push from the EMS Systems Act. That congressional act established funding for 300 regional emergency medical services systems. Also in the early 1970s, the Star of Life symbol was adopted by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration as the symbol for emergency medical services. You have probably seen this symbol. It sort of looks like a thick blue asterisk with a staff in the center with a snake wrapped around it. That is the rod of Asclepius from Greek mythology. Each arm of that asterisk stands for an element of emergency care. So if you start at the top and you work clockwise, those are detection, reporting, response, on-scene care, care in transit, and transfer to definitive care. The first nationwide course to train paramedics started in 1975 at the University of Pittsburgh. It was led by Dr. Nancy Caroline. Dr. Caroline wrote the book Emergency Care in the Streets as part of her work in developing paramedics training. That text continues to be published and used for emergency services training today. And she developed the National Training Program through her work on a project in Pittsburgh in the 1970s that has been requested a number of times by listeners, and that is the Freedom House Ambulance Service. And to talk about the Freedom House and Dr. Caroline, we will, as promised in Part 1, circle back to Dr. Peter Safar. Yeah, so just as a reminder, he was one of the people who uh, developed CPR as we know it today. But even before we talk about him, we have to jump back a few years and talk about Pittsburgh's Hill District in the 1960s. 
The Hill District, a predominantly Black community, had a high rate of unemployment. There were no social services to speak of there. It was a place where, in an emergency during this time period, people might call for medical assistance, but that did not mean they were going to get it. If your call was answered, it was in the form usually of a police car, and anyone needing transport to a medical facility got rough treatment at best. There are lots of reports of people kind of just being thrown in the back of the car and driven to the hospital. Enter Philip Hallen. Hallen was a former ambulance driver who, in the 60s, had moved on to activist work as the chair of the Office of Economic Opportunity Health Committee and the president of the Maurice Falk Medical Fund, which helped to provide medical services to disadvantaged communities. And Hallen had had an idea about how to address both the lack of emergency medical response and the unemployment issues in Hill District. Freedom House Enterprises Incorporated was a group that had formed to address issues in the community and offer a place to gather and kind of do community outreach. It was an offshoot of Pittsburgh's United Negro Protest Committee. And Hallen approached Freedom House about his idea, which was to start an ambulance service that would be staffed by people from the community and would serve the community. To help develop the program from the medical side, Hallen brought in Dr. Peter Safar. And the training started at Freedom House. There were people who showed up for training classes that didn't even know what they were there for. They just knew that it was a job opportunity. Some of the men had issues with addiction. Some had been convicted of crimes. But Safar taught anybody who was willing to follow this program. Yeah, there were a number of the men that got involved that had come back from Vietnam and had never really found their footing. Like, it was a a really open-door policy. If you were willing to do the work, he was willing to teach. Safar's training program was a year-long curriculum. And because some of the trainees that were there were not high school graduates, Safar saw to it that they took classes like algebra and English in a series of courses that started before their medical training that enabled them to get a diploma, and then they could move on to medical classes. And then they took medical foundational courses like anatomy and physiology, and they also trained in CPR. There were 160 hours of classwork in Safar's instructional program. And after that, six weeks of training in a hospital emergency department. The men in the program observed in operating rooms and intensive care units, and they watched autopsies being performed. They watched childbirths. Dr. Safar wanted the Freedom House trainees to know about every stage of care that a patient might receive because he wanted them to basically take all of that knowledge and care and reproduce it in a mobile package. Then his program did exactly that. After completing the program, Freedom House ambulance staffers could intubate, assess vital signs, administer life-saving care, and more. Their first call came in on July 15, 1968, when a woman had a seizure on a bus. It was the first of 5,800 calls that they would answer in that first year under a contract with the city that Safar and Holland had arranged. The Freedom House Ambulance Program was not really expected to succeed. People didn't think you could just take people from a disadvantaged community, train them to be medics, and that that would function. But in fact, it did. The paramedics that finished this training described feeling empowered by having jobs where they could actually help people. And the level of care provided by the men that were trained by Safar was really high. But 
This was still the late 60s and early 70s, and these men encountered racism in scenarios that they had never even been in before. So when they were bringing patients into hospitals, white doctors would often ignore or dismiss them, even as they were giving vital information about the patients that they had been caring for. And if they answered a call involving a white person needing care, they were not always welcomed. The success of the Freedom House Ambulance enabled it to continue for a while, though. In 1974, Nancy Caroline, a resident at Presbyterian Hospital, was brought on as medical director by Dr. Safar. During her time with Freedom House, Caroline wrote along on the calls and ensured that the people on their team had the best training as well as support. She's been nicknamed the mother of paramedics as a consequence. Uh, she, uh, throughout her life, when she was asked to talk about this, like, she really liked to talk about how people in emergency departments tried to dismiss these men and how they would then just, like, rattle off medical terminology with, like, complete knowledge and confidence and how she kind of loved, like, riding back to the hospital giggling about it afterwards. Um, she was really their champion in a lot of ways. But she did more than train these men. She took the medical services offered by Freedom House to entirely new levels. She would push a little farther past where anyone thought mobile medicine could go in terms of treatment that they could perform. And she refined and solidified the team's protocols. And she documented everything as she went. It was from that documentation that Nancy wrote her book on emergency care. The men she trained continued to perform at an incredibly high level, earning the respect and praise of the nation's medical community. Helen's idea, the training programs of Safar and Caroline, and the ambulances designed by Safar to actually be like many hospitals on wheels, all combined to create the first civilian emergency medical service, and they had set the bar extremely high in the process. They created the model that all similar services would be built on. In 1975, as neighborhoods outside of Hill District started pressuring their city officials to ensure that they had similar services in their neighborhoods, the Freedom House program abruptly ended. All of the complaints that the Black community was somehow getting special treatment in having this service led to Freedom House's contract being canceled. While the paramedics of Freedom House were told that they would be hired by the city as it set up its own emergency service, only a few of them actually were. And the claim that was often made when they were denied employment was that they were not qualified, despite the fact that they had been instrumental in developing the very standards that they were being judged by. Dr. Nancy Caroline commented on the end of the program, quote, "...it should have been the success story of the century. In a way, it was." But it is a sad success story because Freedom House is no more. Because so many of those who gave so much of themselves during eight years, who cleared the path for the kind of paramedic services now glorified on national television, have been shunted aside, forgotten, left to return to the street corners and watch the parade pass them by. Despite the closure of the Freedom House Ambulance Service, it certainly left a legacy. The American Ambulance Association formed in 1979. The National Registry of EMTs followed in 1980. And in 1985, the National Association of EMS Physicians was formed. So that we don't end on a bummer, Freedom House was eventually reborn, although in a different place. In 2012, a new Freedom House ambulance service was launched in St. Paul, Minnesota. And like its namesake, the St. Paul program formed to offer job opportunities and health care to underserved communities, as well as to diversify the city's medical workforce. Thank you to everyone who may be listening who works in medical care, who 
lives with someone who works in medical care is in any way connected to medical care because yeah. you guys, it's, it is not enough to say that you are heroes. We recognize that there are issues in terms of equity of payment in a lot of these jobs. Sure want to fix that, but thank you. Uh, I'm going to move on to slightly peppier listener mail because I'm getting all choked up. Listener mail about first cats. Uh, <laughs> this one is very, very short. Uh, it is from our listener, Connie, and she just wrote it with a subject line example of social distancing. Uh, and it is a picture of her cat and her cat's friend from next door. <laughs> and they are just looking at each other through a door. It, it is adorable. Uh, the cat from next door has a fabulous grumpy face, and it is a giant fluffy thing. And the, her cat is a beautiful little sleek black cat, which is one of my favorite things on earth, and it's adorable. She just wrote, my cat and her friend from next door. She and I are long-term listeners. Connie, thank you so much. That was precious. Um, I love a kitty picture. And then I have another email from our listener, Liz, who started her, her email by writing the subject line, want to see my bathroom? Um, which the answer is always yes for me. I want to see anything people do creatively in their house. And she writes, I was hoping that title would get your attention. I bet that's an original subject line. Holly, I know how much you love Haunted Mansion, which happens to be my favorite Disney attraction. I thought you would enjoy seeing my Disney-bound version of a Haunted Mansion bathroom. She writes, if you don't know, a Disney-bound is a non-literal interpretation of something Disney. Uh, you, For listeners, you may have heard that term uh, applied to outfits, uh, but it does apply to other things. She writes, our paint choice is what we've dubbed hitchhiking ghost green. The damask pattern took me another entire day to stencil on the one wall. Does that mirror remind you of the entrance sign? It did for me. The shower curtain rings are also in that same oval shape. The small greenhouse reminded me of the glass architecture at the Walt Disney World mansion. See the ghost in the mini mansion inside? Not pictured is the marble pattern linoleum, which relates to the marble busts of the ghost writers in the library. I seem to recall you having a Halloween or haunted mansion ish living room. Is that right? I'd love to see it. Uh, okay, now I'm sure I'm sounding creepy. Uh, and then she says, now on to a question I'd love to have answered. Do you guys have any topics you've been putting off, but know you'll have to circle back around to to finally do? You know, the obligatory podcast that you've been avoiding, but you know it's got to happen eventually. I tell everyone how much I love the show. You've had a substantial amount of free advertising out of me over the years, as Mist in History is my favorite. Uh, much love and many blessings, Liz. Liz, thank you so much. Your bathroom is so pretty. I love when people do creative stuff like that with their spaces. And I thought that was an interesting question to pose. Uh, you and I have both had a number of topics over the years that we've, like, we're going to get to this eventually. Mm -hmm. a but lot we of them. kind of back away from for various reasons. I'm trying to think of one now off the top of my head that I have. As of at this moment in history, anything that involves a fire or a massacre or an expulsion of people from a place, all that's tabled because I, I can't emotionally deal with it <laughs> yeah uh while also living in the time that we are living in i'm in kind of an opposite situation for some reason i keep stumbling upon fairly grisly murder stories uh and i'm like ooh, i probably shouldn't do that right now <laughs> so they're going on the halloween list and we'll see october is only so long um but yeah, and there are always ones that just, it's a, I always say, because uh, we do get asked this question when we do live events pretty frequently. And I usually say like Queen Victoria, I can, I can only talk about little pieces of her life or I can talk about things related to her, but I love her despite her many faults. And like, I, it's also a long reign. So you kind of got to break that one down. Um, 
there's just so much history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, to both Connie and Liz for sharing a little bit of your lives with us, uh, especially now when we're inside all the time. It's extra nice. Uh, if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. Uh, you can subscribe to our show. That sounds fabulous. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.